This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to part one of my encounter with Malaysia. The Chinese New Year went on for weeks during my holiday and one day in Penang I was in a Burmese Buddhist temple quietly sitting on the cool marble floor when suddenly a bright yellow Chinese dragon clattered in. With men on drums and cymbals making a huge noise. The monks just smiled and blessed it as it danced on. Every morning and late at night we'd hear the muezzin calling out from the mosque, even in the smallest country town up in the mountains. Last day, as we hurried before dawn to catch a ferry, a magnificent Indian festival began with gold and silver chariots ready to be carted through the town. People in gorgeous new saris and men decked out in white and gold. Flowers were everywhere. I had a most happy experience in Malaysia and I felt that they created a lot of harmony between the communities. I met a lot of people in government, three people actually from parliament, and others who are working to stop the logging, over doing the logging in the mountains, to stop the peat fire burning in the region, and to change over to energy efficiency. So there's a sort of idealism there, but everybody emphasised to me this is a developing country, we're new to this. Now I try to only go on a plane once every three years. So, to make my carbon footprint worthwhile, I decided to meet whoever I could who are taking climate action. So you will hear from the Environment Minister in Penang, the Premier of Malacca, and the uh, only Socialist member in the Federal Parliament. I also met many activists. On tonight's show, we'll go to Ipo, up in the Limestone Mountains, where caves used to hide the armed resistance during the war, including some Australians. Ipo, of course, was invaded by the Japanese. It was made rich by tin mining, and there are lots of old houses still there. It's still intact as an old town, beautiful ornate mansions. The Japanese took over one of the old English schools. It's a huge school, and it was the centre for the Kempitai, which was where they tortured people. And I was walking around this town, and at the same time, at night, I'd be reading a book I found there by the local heroine, Sybil Cathagescu, and she was a midwife, and her father and her husband was the doctor. And they eventually started giving medical help and food to these gorillas who came down at night from these limestone mountains to ask for um, the doctor's help. When the Japanese found out about this, they tortured both of them, and Sybil especially was tortured for, for months. She survived the war, and I couldn't help thinking 
how many people living today, perhaps in their 80s or 90s, would really vividly remember being bombed and terrified. And I could understand why they were so proud of the country they've created since then. It is something to be proud of. They are at the high end among developing countries and they have you know, brought most of their 30 million people up to a good standard of living with low infant mortality and good literacy. But they are really dependent on their exports. And like Australia, you know, the, the carbon curse, it's something very hard to get off. And I couldn't find anybody who really contemplated phasing down those exports. I was trying to find out how Malaysia would meet its Paris commitments because, like us, they pledged to decrease their carbon emissions by 2050 and they only have a, they have much lower carbon footprint per person, eight tonnes of CO2 per person compared to Australia with 16 tonnes, but it is high for the region. They have the same jobs and growth mantra that we do and their oil and gas exports are very lucrative for the country because they're owned by the government. Most of the uh, facilities are owned by the government. So really I had lots of questions and I was enjoying myself so much and I thought it would be of interest to you as an example of like a case study of a developing country with fossil wealth like Australia uh, to, to sort of find out how they're thinking around energy efficiency, uh, cutting down emissions and going into the, you know, the climate mode of climate action mode. So the first speaker is Dr. Kumar. I'm in Malaysia and uh, Dr. Jaya Kumar Devaraj is our guest. He's a member of the Malaysian Parliament and he spoke to us at EPO. I'd like to dedicate this show to another doctor first, Dr. Salvador Allende. I think tonight's guest is a bit like him. He's motivated to public office by what he has seen as a doctor. We're in a cafe, so you might hear some of the Malaysian cafe cooking sounds in the background. So welcome, Dr. Devaraj. Before we start, would you tell us about what you saw as a doctor when you started out in Sarawak in among logging workers and native First Nations people, Orang Asli people? How did that motivate you to get into Parliament? I was there as a young doctor in the mid-80s, and uh, I volunteered to go to a rural hospital, a small hospital upriver. And we had, as part of our duties, we had to go visiting the, the more rural, rural villages. And what I found was the villages where logging hadn't reached, the children were much better nourished. You know, whereas those where logging was taking place, there's a lot more of malnutrition. And, and that struck me quite a lot. And then when I went, went to investigate that further, I found that the animal protein went down tremendously when logging took place because the animals run away and the rivers get polluted. So that made a big impact on me because I could see how development was making certain people in the state very rich. But the local population, the local economy was being impoverished. Then you could have just continued your life as a doctor, but what made you go into parliament? Well, I didn't go to Parliament then. I came back. I mean, I stayed on in government service for a total of 19 years, you know, and that was about 15 years after Sarawak. I was working here. Well, what made me go into Parliament was I was basically forced out of the government service because I was helping, our group was helping uh, squatters, you know, people were getting evicted. 
and we were helping them fight for their land. And this involved standing up against developers, men getting arrested a couple of times, and the government didn't take that too kindly. So they're putting pressure on me to transfer me out of the state I'm in now. And uh, it's because of that, the pressure on me in government service, that uh, I decided to go into politics because I was pushed out. We talked to one of your colleagues, Suresh, in uh, Tanarata about the rapid deforestation up in Cameron Highlands and the states around there. And I wonder if at the national level in Parliament there's any talk of, for example, carbon farming or paying those local people to protect this world-famous biodiverse forest. Yes, I mean, there are people who have brought this up. I've talked about it myself that... See, basically, in Malaysia, the states get their money from land. So it's either land rent or they give out the land for logging. They get money from the loggers. So that's an important source of income for the state governments. Uh, Income tax, company tax all goes to the federal government. So this logging thing is a big uh, source of income for the poorer states. So I guess the way out would be if the federal government gives them um, a grant for every square kilometer of uh, forest that is left, you know, uh, without being logged. So they, so they get income from the forest without having to log them. So that's what something like that should be done to encourage them to preserve. I think logging has got to stop now. We've done too much of logging. We've got to stop it now. Yes. I was shocked at how extensive it was from Gormasang to Tanarata on that stretch of road. What do you think Malaysia can do to move away from... We talk about transport now. I read your book and you talked a lot about private cars and indeed many. I was shocked how many cars there were here. I'm very surprised how much car driving goes on here and trucks. And I'd like to think about how can we move away from petrol-fueled private trucks and cars, which this would also have a positive impact on climate, on the climate, you know, less carbon. Yes. I think if you look at it overall in terms of carbon dioxide emissions... About 50% of the emissions comes from electricity generation, and about 25% comes from transport. But sadly in Malaysia, the present government is tied into the private car kind of a syndrome because one is the companies linked to the government own the major highways, and they collect a lot of toll, they make a lot of money from that. And also the um, it is a state a controlled company, which is our major car producer, the Proton, the Peradua. So so we are into car making in a big way as well. So economically, the elite are tied in to this private transport and uh, the building of highways and interchanges in, in Kuala Lumpur, for example. It's all really lucrative for the powers that be. So they do, they do give a lot of lip service regarding climate change and sustainability. But economically, they're tied in to the very wasteful American style of transport. Well, the Americans, lead, led by Canada, uh, no, no, California, are sort of getting into electric vehicles, electric buses. China is getting into electric buses in a big way. And in Australia, people talk about this is going to happen. It's inevitable that we'll have renewable energy on everybody's roof and people will fuel their cars that way. So it won't stop car building and cars. But... Let's talk about petrol, because we saw the Petronas Towers, you know, the symbols of petrol and oil. 
which is a lot of the wealth of Malaysia. Australia also has wealth in fossil fuels, and it's a big curse, you know, because we can't uh, persuade ourselves to stop this money coming in. However, countries like Indonesia have put a moratorium on coal, new coal, and uh, many in Australia are protesting about the expansion of coal for export. Is there anything similar here, any talk, any uh, programs to phase out the export of oil, which is part of the wealth of Malaysia? No, not at all. I think they're trying to improve, increase. It's one of the major sources of revenue. No, there's no talk about that. You see, our, if you look at our, our electricity generation, something like 8 gigawatts uh, comes from coal now. You know, out of a total of about 16. You know, almost half is coal. And there are plans by 2020 to have 12 gigawatts generation from coal. They're going to build a few more coal plants. So we've spoken about that in Parliament, saying you shouldn't do that. But they want, they say it's, you've got to have an energy mix, you've got to have a, so in case the price of oil goes up, you have coal, and, and also they want to have that. And coal is still the cheapest. Is it from Australia? I'm not sure where the coal, maybe. Yeah. Imported from Indonesia, someone told me. It's not local, it's not local coal, we don't have enough. But it's gas, a lot of it is gas, but coal is the biggest amount. And it's only about less than 2% is from solar or, or, or whatever, or renewable sources, you know. You know? Hydro is about 5-6%, but it's still mainly coal and gas. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Tonight we're going to Malaysia and our guest is the Mahatma Gandhi of Malaysian Parliament. His name is Dr. Jayakumar Devaraj. So we've talked about the big picture, Malaysia's transport emissions, exports of fossil fuels. What about at the individual level? Australians have a per capita um, carbon emission of 18 tonnes per person. Malaysians have eight, but there are plenty of countries like France that have less, and Norway and other countries are trying to, they say, decouple their growth and development from carbon-intensive industries. So this is the new word, decoupling. I really, I've interviewed in, uh, economists and I still can't quite get it because I don't think anyone's very advanced on this decoupling. But does your par- parliament have policies going towards this? I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, I think we are still stuck in a, in a kind of a low-wage economy and uh, where our country competes with other countries in the region for foreign, foreign direct investment. We have to produce our goods cheap and sell it to the West. So anything that increases the cost of production uh, would be very bad for the economy. So we've got to address that as well. The fact that big corporations play off the small companies, small countries against each other. If you raise your environmental standards in Malaysia and make their business more expensive, then they go to Thailand, they go to Vietnam, they go to Indonesia, and we end up end up with unemployment. So this is something that we have to address. The fact that the liberal, liberal um, the trade regime, liberal investment regime, allows the big companies to play off. So they can say they are very uh, environmental friendly because they've exported the pollution to the third world and, and, and actually they're causing it because if you increase uh, the cost by using better energy better safer energy more renewable energy which is more expensive 
and then they won't buy from you. They'll go and give their contract somewhere else. So you've got to look at it globally. Mm. It's, the, it's, the, it's the liberalized, you know, the, uh, trade regime, investment regime, things like the TPPA brings about, that enables them to go anywhere and basically they've got a gun against our head and say, you do it cheaply or else I'm moving. Mm. And that is what you've got to address because otherwise, I mean, policymakers in Malaysia have to provide jobs. They have to provide economic growth or else they'll be in trouble as well. So it's not that they are being, you know, they're being nasty, but it's just that they're caught in the whole regime. And smaller countries have got no way to turn because the, the, the big corporations uh, pushes on us. This is very interesting as you've described it, but where does democracy fit in there? Where does the people's ability to change the direction of their government, you know, they of course people want the jobs, of course people want development, they want the health and the schooling and the imp- improvements in life that obviously happened here since Second World War, is a huge improvement in um, development goals. But it seems to me that the public can't, you know, the grassroots can't turn the government around, for example, on the deforestation or on the increased boom in construction. How, how do the public work here? Are there grassroots groups, for example, that can influence, pressure government? I think they could. I mean, I mean, there's some limitations. I think some of these things have got to be done internationally. You know, you've got to have a new Bandung spirit, you know, yes. third world getting together and saying stop tax havens, you know, uh, stop this race to the bottom, let's all raise minimum wages, let's all have a clean energy policy. It's got to be done across the board so that corporations cannot play off countries against each other. That can be done and the people can push for it. But that needs uh, enlightened kind of politics. In this country, politics is still sadly stuck to race and religion. Those play a very big role. And the political parties on both sides of the divide, you know, including the opposition, play on these issues a lot. And they don't focus so much on issues like climate change and sustainability or the unfair system of trade or how imperialism works in this 21st century. I mean, all these things are hardly talked about. So I think, you know, in a way, the politicians have failed the people because they haven't raised the standard of discussion. Because our role, I think, is also to explain what's happening and make people understand what are the main issues instead of just sticking back to religion and race, which is what's happening here. Maybe there's an opening with religion because uh, if you come to Malaysia, you can't help noticing how much religion there is and it's rather nice in a way. There's so much observance going on. There are so many temples to look at. There's a history of religion. Uh, You know, it's very different from Australia. It's very obvious that people spend a lot of time praying and listening to uh, religious speakers. And the Pope recently came out, you know, speaking to all Catholics about climate change. And everybody said this was really progressive thinking, you know, talking about capitalism has to pull back its claws. And uh, we, we have to turn around what's happening. It's a, Climate change is the greatest moral issue as well. So maybe through the religious leaders, do you think there's some uh, way of getting through to the grassroots and getting through to people that this is a moral issue? Or does that, you're smiling, does that seem too improbable? completely they need to give them all some electroconvulsive therapy first you know <laughs> and change the way they think I mean if you look at the dominant religion here Islam you know in Islam there is this concept that human beings are the calif- caliphs we are we are the safeguard safe, the guardians 
of the physical world and we've got to look after this for the future, we've got to look after the environment. That view is there in Islam and, and you could use that kind of Islamic view to talk about renewable energy and sustainability. But these guys are talking about, you know, if you don't go to mosque for three Fridays in a row, you can be arrested and you can be jailed up to two years if you're a Muslim. No, that's the kind of Islam that's being practiced here, a, a prohibitive, punitive kind of Islam where, where the private sins of the poorer people are held up. You're, you're caught drinking in public or you're caught sitting close to a girlfriend, you know, you're not married. You know, and those are punishable. Those become offenses. They can be, they can be jailed or they can be ripped. You know, and that's the kind of Islam that they're pushing, and not things like we are the caliphates of the world. We've got to think about climate change, you know, or we've got to think about this system of trade, which is ripping off all the poor countries in the world. I mean, that they're not looking at at all. So the Islam we are having is an Islam of the courts, Islam of the rich, where the corruption of the rich, the cronyism of the rich, seems to be okay with them. But minor uh, infringements, not going to mosque on this, or not fasting during the fasting month, you know, or, or sitting close to your girlfriend, those become punished. Those become punished punish those things. So I think that is the problem, you know. We're having, and I think you can't blame Islam alone. I think the CIA and the British intelligence had a big part in that as well. I mean, they used conservative, militant Islam to destabilize the so-called Arab secular regimes, you know, you know, Nasser and even even Saddam's people, the Ba'ath Party, you know, the secular regimes were nationalistic and they did nationalize some of the British and American interests. And so these guys went and provoked if the country was Sunni, they provoked the Shia minority. If the country was Shia, they provoked the Sunni minority. And they went to groups which were militant and conservative. So the kind of Islam we have now is partly because of the court Islam from Islam itself, and also partly because of what CIA and MI5 did to destabilize what they considered as regimes which were more friendly towards the Soviet Union. You know? And so we have the militancy, we have the conservatism, we have the authoritarianism, which is the result of these factors, you see, and, and, and still so to Malaysia as well. So I don't think they're going to come and give a speech like what the Pope did. You know, you know I think we've got to get them out of politics. They've got, we've got to be a secular state. We can't be... Now the thinking is, there's a lot of Muslims in Malaysia who think Malaysia's problems will be solved if we become an Islamic state. And we've got to fight against that. It's a big fight, but in all the people I interview, they say you have to go to where the people, um, who are the responsible leaders, who are the respected leaders. I often do interview doctors, for example, and scientists, because they are respected. They are the community leaders, ambulance drivers, nurses. They're the ones who are at the front line, and they can... People just trust them. And I think these uh, religious leaders, as you've described it very well, it'll be very new to Australian li listeners, what you've said, but maybe getting through to those people and lifting their consciousness as leaders may be one avenue, but I, I, can't, I can't imagine it from what you've said, but maybe that is the way through. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. And our guest is the Mahatma Gandhi of Malaysian Parliament. His name is Dr. Jaya Kumar Devaraj. I'd just like to finish with talking about science and scientists. 
We have a lot of pressure against scientists in Australia, and I've heard in America, you know, they're, they're having big demonstrations against this Trump regime that's coming in that will defund a lot of things in climate science. Um, I'd like to give a personal example as an analogy for the listeners. I had cancer two years ago, and I went to the doctor, and he said, look, it's a grade three cancer, stage one. And the grade three meant it was very serious, but the stage one meant that it was only at the beginning. And I took his scientific advice. I had an operation, I had the treatment, and I'm here now to talk to you, and I'm very well. I'm travelling in Malaysia, so I'm enjoying my life. I was lucky. But I think climate change is like that. I think the scientists are saying it's very urgent, it's grade three, but you can take radical action now. It's stage one. You may have a chance. No guarantees. What is your... What is stopping governments, let's talk globally now, do you think, what is stopping governments from respecting this expert scientific advice because climate <laughs> scientists are all telling them something like that? I think, I think governments the world over have become hostage to the top 0.01% who control a lot of the wealth. And these very rich people are now not beholden to any government. You know, and they can, because of the liberal regime that has come in since 1990s, they can just shift their wealth, they shift their production, they can shift their headquarters to anywhere they want. So I think a lot, of, you can see the pressure on, on governments, you know, all governments are cutting back on corporate tax. You know, I mean, America was, what, 60% about 30, 40 years ago, and now it's down to 40%. Malaysia was 40% in the 80s, now it's down to 24%. Singapore is 19% corporate tax on profits. So I think this is the problem. We have, we have allowed a very liberal trade and investment regime. And that's why the top 0.001% are getting richer and richer and richer, you know. So that is the problem. They have tremendous amount of control over our governments. I think what Bernie Sanders said, you know. These guys are bankrolling the political parties. It's happening in this country as well. The, the rich... Uh, the businessmen are supporting the ruling party as well as the dominant opposition parties. So whichever party wins, they are on top. So I think this is something we have to consider, political funding. Can we have public funding for politicians? Can we make funding by corporations illegal? Very seriously limited. Otherwise, we have democracy in form, but all the Democrats you put into office are beholden to the top 0.01%, and ultimately they'll say what we want to hear, but they'll be careful not to. So I think that's the problem. I think democracy in this, I think democracy has been subverted by the huge economic wealth of the 0.01 percent. You know, and I think that's why a lot of things cannot get done because they'll block it. Well, it's very, very, very uh, challenging for the scientists who are trying to get their message through. Thank you very much. We've just been listening to Dr. Jayakumar Devaraj. In the, he's a member of the Malaysian Parliament, and we've been talking very broadly, but he has got his finger on the pulse of why more climate action isn't happening here. But it's not that far away from what we experience in Australia. So thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to 3CR Radio. I'm Tara Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. 
Thank you very much. Hi, listeners. Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And that was just a little bit of music from Gentle Ben and their sensitive si- and his sensitive side, the beginning of the end, one of my favourite songs. So we're going to go back to Vivian and uh, the interviews that she conducted while she was in Malaysia, looking at what's going on there to tackle climate change. Now we're in Penang, and I'm with the Minister for the Environment, Tuan Phi Boon Po, and his Special Officer, Josephine Tan. Welcome to Beyond Zero Emissions Radio. Uh, I notice that your role is for the environment, welfare, and a caring society. Tuan, many people see that reducing air pollution through phasing out oil, coal, and gas would have a good benefit on health. Is that starting to happen in Penang? Well, I noticed that you have had a bit of success with open burning incineration. Is that uh, tell us a bit about that? Because those short-lived climate pollutions like soot from open burning is very important to cut that down. How has that worked? Now, in so far as open burning, uh, it is a very sensitive issue. Yes. Now, there's two types of open burning. Now, one is what we call commercial burning. Oh. One is uh, culture and religious burning. Oh. Now, you look. Uh, we, when we say that uh, commercial, commercial, any people who are dealing commercial clearing, trying to burn out the the waste and all these things, mm-hmm. is definitely we will bite them. Mm-hmm. Definitely, because we do not allow them. Mm-hmm. They must have proper waste disposal, and they must have got saturation and source and zero waste. They should be thinking of how to optimize the usage of whatever uh, you have. And of course, we have got a plan, Green Council. Who, who deals with what they call your waste arm our treasure. So we have got to deal with that. And uh, on the other one, which we talk about religious and culture, traditionally, the, 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 in, the, in the religious, the people will always strip the, the floor, the leaves and all these things, and uh, they, they burn the leaves so that the smoke, they can help in terms of in terms of this uh, so-called uh, pollination of the, uh, the fruit trees mm-hmm. and, and also to convert into this uh, so-called this, uh, fertilizer for themselves, uh, these are very small. The other aspects in the religion, of, of, of religion uh, we are talking about like uh, the Taoists where they burn the John stick, yes. they burn the John's paper, yes. and this we also do have campaign yes. on the reduction of it. Ah, yes, I've been here for Chinese New Year and I've seen a lot of that, but yep. I don't think that can be, in the big scheme of things, really such a, yep. a big impact. Whether it's, whether it's in a big scale or on a small scale, mm. an awareness must be created. Yep. So when you create an awareness, is there alternative? Yep. So we are talking about, can you please reconsider an yep. alternative? Yep. <coughs> Another one which we are looking at, is the so-called the food waste. Yes. The food waste, the meeting of, uh, of methane gas is something which is not right. So that's why we do have what the policy called cleaner, greener, safer, healthier, and happier. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about cleaner, mm-hmm. we are not talking about cleaning physically. Mm-hmm. See, cleaning physically is a must. Mm-hmm. Make sure that you don't throw rubbish. Mm-hmm. Okay, then uh, you don't be a waste generator. 
our litter park. Uh, that's part of parcel campaign. Mm. But we talk about cleaner, cleaning in terms of, of thinking, mm. uh, be responsible to the environment, uh, cleaner administrations, mm. everything must be cleaner. I mean, if you don't have got inside and outside, it does not balance mm. up. It has got to be sustainable. Well, we've had a, a month in Malaysia, and I've mm. noticed a lot of this campaign is working because the cities are very clean relatively to other places I've been. It's very clean here. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea that okay. you're working on people's okay. minds as well. So just let's talk about technology, green technology, because Beyond Zero Emissions is very keen on the transition to renewable energy, you know. So these need policies, and you're the environment minister. So how how do you encourage green technology, for example, in all these new buildings? Uh, do you have feed-in tariffs or renewable energy targets? How do you do it here in Malaysia? In Malaysia, it's most unfortunate. Many things are political. Oh. For example, for example, uh, Penetra, we are talking about having uh, the second most sunlight in whole of Malaysia after Sabah. Uh, Penang is very eager to go ahead. We have got so many industries. So we are talking about a roof over the roof. Mm-hmm. And that can become our renewable energy. Penang Environment Minister talked about how their energy is still provided by coal, oil and gas. He referred to solar PV as a roof over the roof. Independent power producer, they produce the power in the traditional way, using oil, gas, and, and yeah. coal. It's a source of the problem. Yes. That's we right, and it's expensive because you import coal, yeah. don't you, from Indonesia? It's yeah. expensive. So we should be using biomass. Mm. We should be using wind energy. We should be using what we call this, this, the solar energy. Yes. Well, beyond zero emissions, we did a modelling for the whole of Australia that we, how would we get to 100% renewable energy? And it's possible. But our government, of course, doesn't go quickly to this solution, but we'll eventually get there, I hope. But there's a Stanford University professor called Mark Jacobs, and he has done a modelling for all the countries in the world. And I looked up Malaysia, and he considers that Malaysia could reach 100%, you know, renewable energy with the solar power you have, the wind power and biomass by 2050. And he said it would pay for itself because you would reduce the health problem of pollution, you know, the hospital costs would be down, and also the importing costs for you know, um, coal and probably exploiting petrol. So, can Malaysia, do you think, is it being really talked about seriously here that you could leapfrog over the future fossil fuels and go towards renewable energy quite quickly, like by 2050? Look, if you use the Penang government, the model which we are running, it is possible. We can even achieve even before that. Really? It is, it is possible. With the, solar power and what, wind power? How would you do it? With solar power. Yeah. With, with solar power, it's a matter of design. Design our, the, our, our constructions and development. Yeah. You see, it is always good to have a roof over the roof, which means that we reduce the heat. When we reduce the heat, we reduce the energy usage. Yes. And whatever wish we have using the solar, then it would be comes a fitting tariff. Yes. But the problem here is the fin travel 
train traffic is now being controlled by the federal government. Uh-huh. And the federal government at this present point, they are still very traditional to the old type of administration. Yes. And there's a lack of political view. Yes. If, uh, to have the political view means that you must be able to go down to the ground, be with the people, bite the bullet, mm-hmm. and you take the first step. Yes. So that the people follow. Yes. That, sh- that should have been that should have been done. Yeah. But it was not at the federal level. We have been asking for the fee tariff, but the fee tariff instead of an environmental issue that becomes a commercial issue. Yes. Who is to get it? Yeah. But that is the biggest problem. Luan Fibun Po said we should divorce ourselves from greed and leave a legacy behind. Until men, men and women, mm-hmm. uh, they are always prepared to divorce their partners. But here, you're talking politically, people are still not able to come to the stage to divorce from greed. From greed. From greed, yes. <laughs> yes. So if you are, if you are prepared to, to divorce from greed and say that, I am given an opportunity to leave a legacy behind. Mm-hmm. I want to leave this legacy. Yes. Forget about self-interest, friend interest or this one. Talk about what all the environment interests, yeah. the future interests of our generations and generations yet unborn. Yeah. That is more important. Yeah. Well, I can see you're talking in a progressive way, and I mm. heard that Penang was progressive. Our federal government in Australia is very similar. You know, they really want to keep exporting coal and not think about mm. renewable energy at all. So the states have to take over. The, each state has to be much more progressive, as is happening here. I've noticed a lot of new buildings, really, everywhere. I went up in Cameron Highlands and also, but here in Penang too, a lot of new buildings, and some of them built on reclaimed land, mm. reclaimed from the sea. And I wonder if climate change is factored into this, you know, with sea level rise, and mm. are they really conscious of the future for those buildings? So we are trying to bring back public transport. Yes. And we are talking about moving people. Yeah. Moving people, which means that we do not want to have a urban slum. No. So what we are creating now is to have what they call urban rural migration. <laughs> and this is one of the ways to, to do it. Yes. Like in the state of Penang, we have got land shortage. Which do you prefer? Chop down the trees to build on the place or create a new island and have the, the building down there and plant more trees? Yes. Oh, I pre- prefer the trees. But, and I haven't seen this before, though. I haven't really seen these artificial islands. I saw it also at Malacca, reclaimed land. I just thought, with sea level rise, are you going to say, you know, are those buildings going to be safe? So we've talked about land. What about on the bigger picture of land? I've been reading this book by one of your scientists here, Adnan Hezri. It's called The Sustainability Shift. And he talks about green courts. Apparently there are three, 13 specialised environment courts that deal with criminal cases dealing with the environment. But it's, I think it's in the states rather than at the federal level. Could you explain how the courts work to protect, for example, the water catchment you know, of a, of a mountainous area to not be logged? How do those courts work? Now, in so far as this, uh, the, the water catchment area, it is all... Once there's a catchment area, then there should not be any activities. Uh, no, we don't have an environment court, but uh, we, we use the local council to, to enforce it. Yes. Because under the so-called town planning, <clears throat> any change of the status of the land from its original status, you have got to have approval. Yes. Non-approval means we can bring you to the court. Yes. 
and this is the, the this is the the criminal court. Okay, all right. Well, another thing that um, Adnan Hezri talked, he seemed to be very worried about the the rapid deforestation and. The fact that it, it, Malaysia is such a progressive country, it should be able to stop it before it becomes a tragedy, you know, an environmental tragedy. And he said that he thought the states, each state should pay for ecosystem services. Now, I think this would be a new idea in Australia, really, but do you know this idea of ecosystem services that, in fact, the states, instead of suffering a water shortage in Kuala Lumpur, for example, you could pay the forested states to preserve the water catchment. Now, uh, the federal government is trying to, to, to go on this line. We do not allow a single tree to be locked in our water catchment area and even our forest reserve. Mm. It's, it remains intact. Unlike other states, even the water catchment area, they still allow on this kind of logging. Yeah. Uh, this is not right. This is not. This is not right. It have got to stop immediately. Yeah. Well, that's now, what Hesri said. It will be an environmental yeah. tragedy if it goes on. No. And the yeah. other. Well, look, I I think Penang is a leader in Malaysia for taking the public along. I first heard about your Green Council in Melbourne. Yeah. I went to the Sustainable Living Festival and I met someone there from um, from this Penang Green Council. And I'd like to you to tell us how you're educating people. You talked about the clean mind and as well as just the clean streets. And um, how are you educating people to take climate change seriously? Now, uh, first, what we do is uh, we bring life back into the community. Because of rapid development, people are living in isolation. When people live in isolation, they are not bothered about what, who are their neighbours, how are their neighbours doing. Mm. But to bring them back, then mm. we must have a public park. Public park is one, what we call city lungs. Mm. It, may, it may be small, it may be big, mm. but public, public park, yeah, public parks that have got to be of these, we call the environment lung for yeah. the, for the, 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 the city residents. Yes. And it is at that area we started to explain the importance of environment. Mm. It's called engagement. Even the chief minister himself goes down to the ground to explain to the people how beautiful it is clean, mm -hmm. how good when it is, when we have green. Mm -hmm. And we have got the community taking care of one another, how safe it is the, uh, the, 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 our, our society, community. Mm -hmm. yes. If it's clean, it's green, it's safe, then it's definitely healthier. Much better. And when it's health, so healthier, everybody's happier. Yeah. So the five things goes together. Mm -hmm. It's connected. And these are the message which we send. And these are the message which been sent by the, 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 the top leaders in the administrations to the people on the very bottom of the ground. And that is important. It is. And I noticed with young people too, you're encouraging young people. And I saw something on the internet where you were giving, um, there's a prize for public speaking. Yep. And I think they're called Green Idol yep. Public Speakers Competition. And I would like, if the winner of that public speaking would like to speak on the radio in, in our radio program I'm very happy for them to yep. go on the phone and we can have them talk to us yep. you know, Definitely young people uh, This is organised yearly we started with the so called the Green School where we know that these are our future leaders we inspire them at the primary school, we inspire them at the secondary school to get them committed 
And uh, of course, we show appreciation to them, and we even give what we call incentive to them. Uh, this, this are important. Now, incentive is not in terms of money. Incentives is just like those who are actively involved, we bring them to see all, all our projects through the whole, whole of Penang. Mm-hmm. The Environment Minister told me how they were bringing life back into the city. This was because he was Minister for the Environment and for a caring society. The small gardens were definitely there and the opportunities for people to meet each other, to share things, were very visible in this city. Also, people who were interested in the environment or interested in growing vegetables even were given small plots of land. Recycling became a community affair so that community groups could get together in fortnightly cycles and collect renewable, um, you know, recycled goods and then sell them and the money went to a charity. Last year, he told me they provided money for a kidney dialysis centre. Simple thing, like what we call community farming, where every household who are active in the community being given a very small plot of land, 5 feet by 10 feet, where they, we, are, we, we teach them how to plant vegetables, mm-hmm. and we ask them to plant different vegetables, share with other people, mm-hmm. and that's where we generate what we call a caring society, mm-hmm. creating an awareness, people talk about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You see, this is how you bring life back to the community. Yeah. And when it's life in the community, then people will start to say that this is what we want. Yeah. We empower the people of what they want, what kind of environment they want. Yeah. To be locked up in the house with the gate, <laughs> lock and all these things, and, and stare at the TV. Yeah. And even the TV doesn't acknowledge that you are alive down there. <laughs> You see, that is the, the total difference. Yeah. Well, I can see lots of nice things are happening here, not just Penang, but especially Penang with the heritage. I love history, and I love the way you've preserved the history, and you have people who are so proud of it. They take you on a heritage walk explaining the history, and I can see a lot has happened in your history. There's a lot of suffering as well, a lot of very rapid development, colonialism, all of this, and I wonder what you think of the future. You're a, a political leader, What's your vision? I don't, you know, not everyone can be really optimistic, but what's your hope for, especially with climate change, the challenge that we're all facing? We all, we all signed up at Paris that we would reduce emissions. I'm getting older myself. I don't think I'm going to see it. But um, do you feel that the policies are going to start working soon? Uh, yes, it is working, and it's working very well. With the people taking ownerships. Uh, we are we are now installing uh, we are installing facilities at all the market, and all the market new market will always be redesigned. That they must have got a recycling center, the recycling center. They also have got including the food waste. The other one is uh, what we call zero waste society. Zero waste society, which is the community itself, they they have their own meetings. They, they keep everything segregated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the organic waste they do the do the what called composting, and the rest is recycled. They only ask the recyclers to come once every fortnight. Then the the time the time they, they play the music, they come out. Then we, everybody bring it out. They wait the whole thing, and then they pay to the community this uh, the the community's committee leaders. Yes. They keep the money. At the end of the year, they do charity work. Right. Why? Once you uh, introduce recycling 
with charity work, a lot of people are willing to come. Because people do not look at the commercial aspects of it. The people look at the commitments, yeah. uh, the commitments to do charity is yeah. there. Yeah. So we have got people like the Suji, the Buddhist group, who collects all recycled items, sell and use it to finance the dialysis center. Yeah. <coughs> all this has been done. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, look, we've spoken a lot longer than I thought we would, it's okay. but it's fantastic that you, what you're doing here. <coughs> As you've explained, the federal level is a different thing, and all the countries are struggling with that. We've made these commitments in Paris. I think we're struggling along the way. Do you have any final message for Australia, who is your near neighbour? Yeah, uh, Penang have got a policy, global commitments, local actions, Penang leads. Uh, even though we cannot move the mountain, but at least we take the first step. And uh, in Penang, uh, we all, because we have got so many what call culture, and we are talking about a lot of major festivals oh, yes. like yeah. this coming Typhoon. We will have got to get the local council people, to get the NGOs. As soon as, uh, because we are talking about influx of tourists, mm. and then you are talking about li- a lot of little bugs, mm. who in the States, there is no much awareness. Mm. So we will have got to, as soon as the chariot passes, we clean it up. Yeah. The Minister for the Environment was also Minister for a Caring Society, and he emphasised to me that tourists shouldn't be litter bugs. Their way of doing it without shaming people was to clean up every time. And many of the things he said to me weren't exactly climate action, but they were the sort of things that build a resilient society. You could see lots of examples of this. And I was out that night after the interview. Late we were at another Chinese festival. Some of the streets were closed off. Lots of street food, people having absolute banquets and Chinese dragons, more dancing, lots of singing. And I saw the Environment Minister with all the other state ministers walking along in red shirts and uh, being presented uh, red envelopes by the population. And he came over to us and shook our hands. And I felt very uh, pleased when I listened again to this interview to realise he'd said that they had a real policy of cleaning up because the next morning when I got up early, it was absolutely spotlessly clean. All those streets were back in order. And... It was a, a lesson in civic pride. I think they're going to be moving on quite soon to solar energy and m- much more protection of their water resource and, if not, energy efficiency and public transport. Those are all aspects and projects that they're working on in Penang. It's a small state, but it really is leading. Immediately clean it up and show to the people that we are cleaning up. It's not to disgrace you, mm-hmm. but to show that please don't throw it. Mm. See, so these, these are things which we have done very successfully in Penang. Yeah. That's why we have mega festivals. They are all type of medicines to cure all kinds of illness. Yeah. But there's no medicine for laziness. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I think on that note, we'll have to finish. But thank you very much. Yep. Our guest has been the Honourable uh, Fee Boon Po, who is the State Minister for Penang on the environment and I'm very privileged to have bring him to the Australian listeners and I hope when you have those young people who win the competition for speaking out about climate change that you get them to speak to us on the radio. Sure. Well, listeners, that was an interesting perspective of what's going on in Malaysia. Um, Vivian was visiting there recently and uh, has put that package together for you 
it'll be a follow-up next week with um, more of the information that she gained while she was in Malaysia. So look forward to that. Just a few announcements before we sign off for the hour. It's now 5.54. The Beyond Zero actually organised a field trip to Cape Patterson, which is, there's a sustainable housing development there called The Cape. So I look forward to bringing you some information on that in the coming weeks. The, uh, I think the lowest rated house uh, energy efficiency rating, building rating was 7.5. And we did also do a walk through a house that is looking like it'll be assessed at a level 10, which is theoretically the highest level. So that's pretty interesting what's going on there. They've got community gardens. 50% of the site is going to be dedicated to open space. So that's really interesting. I'm sure if you... Um, jump on online you can find out more information but we'll bring you some more information about that we also wanted to um, thank people that have become new uh, subscribers for the bzd newsletter that's something that you can do on our website it's easy to go on there and beyond zero emissions relies on donations from um, the public to keep our work going we run on an absolute shoestring so we really appreciate um, anyone that has become a baseload supporter or who may be giving through um, their good to give uh, workplace donation scheme so we really appreciate and thank people for supporting our ongoing work we'll be talking um further into the year with Michael Lord about the industrial processes research and work that he's undertaking at this point in time. That's um, probably the biggest piece of research that's going on at the moment for Beyond Zero Emissions. So we look forward to talking a little bit more about that. So I would like to thank the team today, Teddy, Jody, Roger. Um, as you are aware, my name's Erin Jones. Thanks to Vivian for her interviews. Um, they were from Dr. And I'm going to apologise beforehand because I think I'm going to make a mess of these names. So apologies. Dr. Jaya Kamara Devijay from the Malaysian Federal Parliament and the Honourable Fee Boon Poo, who was the Environmental Minister in the Penang State Government. So that was um, today's program. Next week, Vivian's going to be continuing her discussions around what's going on in Malaysia. Um, after after us, there is the Save Albert Park show. So look forward to seeing that. And we will look forward to talking with you next week. If you've got any ideas for the radio show, be sure to drop us a line at radioteam at bze.org.au. And be sure to keep um, keep involved on the website. That's where you can look at our podcasts and everything. Okay, so I'll look forward to talking with you next week.